The Athletic. Hello, welcome to this week's Athletic Football Tactics podcast. I'm Ali Maxwell and each week on this show we discuss something in and around the realms of football tactics and analytics. Sometimes it's newsy and topical, sometimes it's frivolous and sometimes it's both, as is the case this week. Delighted to say I'm joined by Michael Cox and Mark Kerry. Hello, Michael. Hi, Ali. All well? Yeah, I've got a bit of a cold, so sorry if that comes across in my uh, audio output today. But uh, yeah, otherwise all good. Eventful Champions League uh, week so far. We've only had half the games, but there was a lot of storylines from last night. Michael Cox is cold. The athletic newsroom, Mark, I imagine, is hot with the news that Thomas Tuchel has been sacked by Chelsea. Uh, how are things in the slack, in the uh, in the office? It, does everyone just charge around shouting? That's my vision of it. Yeah, I mean, just judging by my laptop, it's audibly whirring at the moment. So I think it's just genuinely really hot with the amount of tabs I've got open, all the things going on, all the stuff I've got to do off the back of the big news that, is, that has hit us. It, it is unusual, Michael, to feel like this sort of news at a club this size has come somewhat out the blue. Not that Chelsea have not been playing poorly and on poor form and Tuchel cutting a very frustrated figure, but very specifically the fact that this news item was on the website for about five minutes before I saw anything mentioned uh, on Twitter. So Thomas Tuchel, 100 games and out at Chelsea. What's your initial reaction? I feel a little bit for Tuchel. I mean, it is early in the campaign, but I do think there's been a bit of a stagnation at Chelsea since he won the Champions League. I mean, his first half season, he did an absolutely brilliant job to turn them around from, from how they were under Lampard, obviously to win the European Cup. But I thought last season was a huge disappointment. I mean, a lot of people, myself included, felt that bringing in Lukaku was the final piece in the jigsaw. And really, they probably went backwards. And I think there's been quite a common pattern that Chelsea have had lots of very good attacking players who have looked excellent at former clubs who just haven't really clicked or haven't really looked right in Tuchel's system. And I do think that was a concern. And you look at the performances this season, I mean, they're really poor away at Leeds, really poor away at Southampton, quite lucky against West Ham. Obviously, the defeat last night feels... Um, you just don't really get Premier League clubs losing to Eastern European sides anymore. So, yeah, it's a little bit early, isn't it? But I don't think it's as shocking as uh, as maybe a lot of people do. I think as well, for all the narrative that we speak about, the, the attacking play, Lukaku and all the drama around that last season, I think one of Tuchel's main things that he did so well, especially when he came in, was to sort out the defence, you know, specifically the defence, but how good Chelsea were kind of off the ball, their pressing intensity, being safe of keeping possession well as a defensive tactic. And... You know, even looking at the the underlying numbers, the the rolling XG graphics we use commonly on site, you can see just how much he brought that down um, in the early sort of periods. And you know, it's still very early on in the season, but even towards the back end of last season, those sort of defensive, you know, expected goals against numbers were creeping up ever so slightly. And when you've got the kind of the ongoing issue of Chelsea not being as clinical at the top end, then you start those gaps start to get smaller, and then you know, poor results follow. So. Uh, yeah, the trends were there, sort of clear to see over kind of looking back towards the, the back end of last season. Yeah, Opta put some tweets out last night before the sacking, uh, sort of splitting his 100 games nicely down the middle 
and pointing out that in his first 50, Chelsea kept 31 clean sheets, only conceded 24 goals, just under half a goal per game. But in his second 50-game chunk, they kept 18 clean sheets versus 31 uh, and conceded 53 goals, so just over one goal a game. Not hard to see the slippage played out there, Michael. Do you think going forward it was a case of the defensive numbers and the out-of-possession strength was always sort of covering up deficiencies going forward. And would you say that was more to do with the personnel underperforming or some deficiency within Tuchel's system that never quite worked? Yeah, it's quite nice when a manager's sacked after exactly 100 games, isn't it? Just so much easier to calculate the numbers. Um, I think the it seems to me like the, the attackers just had such specific roles and had so many responsibilities in terms of their defensive work and in terms of the positions that they were supposed to take up in attack that maybe he just took something away from them individually. I mean, none of the attackers really have thrived under him. Lukaku, Werner, Ziyech, Havertz, Pulisic, they've all looked better at their previous clubs than they have at Chelsea. And that hasn't been evident for players in other positions. I think the defenders have done well, the midfielders broadly have done well. But there does seem to be a yeah a pattern there that I, I think is quite concerning. I suppose the unusual thing is, obviously, they, they brought in a lot of players in the summer, including one of whom, Aubameyang, seemed to be uh, really Tuchel's choice. So to spend a lot of money to bring him in and then not stick with Tuchel is a little bit odd. But they are... They're good attackers. Most of them are versatile attackers. And I'm sure whoever comes in will, will embrace those uh, those talents. I think that's the thing as well. They've all been fairly good attackers, good forwards, but none of them really clinical finishers. And you might say that Lukaku was that, but we know about the sort of all the controversies around that, which is why it was interesting that Bamiang's come in as someone who you would put in the category of a clinical finisher. And he's had about, I think, 50 minutes played, obviously under Tuchel. And now it's... No more. So uh, I think it would have been interesting because Chelsea in the, the early games of the season have actually had really good build-up, got into some really good areas. And Mike, I know you've done pieces on that, I think specifically the Spurs game, um, but not been able to to convert. And I went to the, the Chelsea-Leicester game and it was a bit of a strange game because they went down to 10 men, but it was still the same same story, even though they won. They had more opportunities to score, but just couldn't convert. So... Yeah, I think it would have been interesting to see how Tuchel would have done with Aubameyang, but yeah, it's no more. I feel like there's been an issue with with the midfield this season, particularly finding uh, what I think Mark sometimes calls the alchemy in midfield. We've spoken about it with Liverpool as well. I mean, Jorginho has been uh, sort of one of Tuchel's um, main men, I think it's fair to say, and and has avoided injury, unlike many of the other midfielders, most notably Kante, who struggled massively, and Kovacic in little patches as well. Jorginho, f- for me, has always stood out as a key player whenever Chelsea have played really well under Tuchel, but then quite often stood out in the opposite sense when Chelsea, the team, have been struggling. So it's hard to know whether that's a, a Jorginho problem or a team problem that highlights Jorginho's deficiencies. Uh, and then, you know, the, the, the players like Conor Gallagher, when he's had a chance this season, it hasn't looked quite right in terms of the profile of player that he is and the midfield role that he's been playing. Loftus-Cheek, of course, gets quite a lot of minutes kind of all over the pitch, uh, sometimes at right wing back for Tuchel. And, and, and that, for me, Michael, has been something noticeable over the last few weeks, that midfield balance, you know, even using mountain midfield last night in the Champions League, which didn't look to work either. Just a lot of different things being tried, very little control being exerted on games in that area of the pitch. 
Yeah, I agree. I, I think they're, what, seven games into the season? And I think there's only really one where they've played well, which was Tottenham, um, where they should have won and didn't win. So they haven't really had, a, you know, games where you, you get a tick for the result and a tick for the performance. So they have started the season quite badly. Um, and like you say, yeah, there are some there are some issues in the midfield. I think whatever combination is used, there is um, there is a bit of a question mark about how it's going to work. So yeah, the, I mean, the more you look at it, the more you just think things were getting a little bit out of hand. And there was as well, I got just a sense that the mood at Chelsea was quite bad. I mean, just some of the post-match interviews Tuchel's done, you did you did suspect there were kind of wider problems than what we're just seeing on the pitch. The funny thing is, what we haven't touched on yet, is that there's an extent to which people are rolling their eyes and saying this all seems classic Chelsea, something we've recognised happening at the club for almost 20 years. Of course, it's a different ownership group now, so it almost feels wrong to sort of continue that theme. It's Todd Bowley's first managerial change. It's his decision and he's taking ownership of it. And as interim sporting director as well as owner of the club which is an unusual situation it's now on him to to make the change and appoint someone new so where do Chelsea go from here Michael Mark Graham Potter is the early favourite with the bookmakers uh, and there's been some reporting that Chelsea will ask the question so to speak Uh, what do you make of Potter as the next Chelsea manager uh, from his point of view and from Chelsea's well I I understand why they'd be interested in Potter but I wouldn't be surprised if he says no, really. It just feels to me like Potter wants a bit more of a stable club. Um, you know, an ownership that that works well, that functions well. And I just, I feel like if he was to go to Chelsea, I think there'd be, there's a danger that he would basically not last very long. And I think he's a very good manager, but I think he's he's good enough. Um, a, I mean, I'd love to see how he does with, with Brighton for the rest of the season because they've made such a good start. And B, I, I think he might hold out for another job that's just a bit more stable. Um, I could be wrong. I mean, he's he's obviously, um, yeah, Chelsea would be, I think, financially, obviously a, a completely different world for him. And he's not a manager who's been at big clubs before, not a player who had, you know, tremendous success. So, uh, you know, you can't ignore the fact that if he was to sign a three-year contract with Chelsea, that would be probably life-changing for him. But um I must say, yeah, I'd be disappointed if he went because I just would like to see how he does with Brighton. I think it's kind of, yeah, I completely agree with Mike. I was going to say that for that exact same reason. I really want to see him see out at least this season with Brighton. And there's there's so much politics going on at, at Chelsea. You could look at it at two ends of the scale because Zinedine Zidane is also rumoured and he's maybe not known for his tactical acumen. I think it's fair to say, but he can deal with big name players. And then you've got Graham Potter who isn't proven with big name players per se, but is a huge tactician. I don't know which Chelsea would prefer there. Maybe in the short term, maybe go down more the Zidane route, but then long-term, or the idea being long-term to have Potter, but then would when things went wrong with Potter potentially or with Chelsea under Potter, if it was to happen, would they then turn to someone else and then Potter's reputation might be tarnished as a result when we know just how good of a tactician he is. So yeah, Zidane being an interesting other other shout in the in the mix as well. It strikes me as quite interesting how different the narrative around Graham Potter as the obvious next appointment for a big six club is compared to when we did an episode on Graham Potter about two thirds of the way through last season, where there was a a strong swell of support at that time for Potter and for for what he had been implementing at Brighton, his style of play, the way he carries himself, talks about the game, etc. There was also a lot of 
kickback about, you know, he hasn't achieved anything. He's barely moved Brighton up the table a huge amount. They can't win at home, all those sorts of things. It, it is fascinating to me how quickly narratives can change around managers in particular. And I wonder whether that plays into this decision for someone like Potter. I think this is a great test of the old classic debate of those probably people like myself who say, if I'm Potter, I'd never take that job. You know, he's got a great thing at Brighton, really good supportive owners. He's building something and, you know, there's no job security at Chelsea. Just look at the last 15 managers that they've had versus sometimes what tends to play out in in the cold light of day within the game, which is Chelsea are very rich, can pay him incredibly well, are playing Champions League football, and can give him the opportunity to do that, and from there, who knows what happens next? It's it's a it's a for me, Michael, a fascinating part of the discussion around managers, basically, and what they should or shouldn't do. Yeah, I agree. I think you have to be brave to turn turn down a, an opportunity like this because you never know what's going to happen. If he was to go on a bad run with with Brighton and and lose his job there, you wonder where his next job would be. Um, I must say, I think Pochettino seems like a more obvious fit. Having been at Tottenham, having been at PSG, um, I think broadly done a well, actually done a very good job at Tottenham. PSG is a difficult club to manage, but he just seems to be the right profile for me to go in there and handle some big name players, and I think probably can can make good use of this squad. So, yeah, it's it's great to see Potter being linked off the back of you know, let's be honest, doing a good job at Swansea and a good job at Brighton, but. It is a big step up. I mean, it is a really different challenge in so many ways. Pochettino, to me, feels like a ready-made replacement. And I can see Potter going maybe somewhere more like Tottenham or Arsenal in years to come, just because it feels like the structure behind the scenes is a bit a bit more in place. And that's part of the reason I think he's done so well at, at Swansea and Brighton, because you can say the same at those clubs. Well, I dare say when a manager is appointed, we may have more to say on the matter. So let's shelve that for the moment. Move on to the main objective of this podcast. And uh, the, the content of this week's episode has come once again from the creative and inquisitive minds of, of our listeners. And one in particular, uh, Mark Travis, who messaged me last week uh, with a question that I found very interesting. Uh, Mark said, off instinct... Who would you say plays the most like Lionel Messi from a tactical perspective? I find this question interesting because when I tune into games every week, the player who strikes me as doing the most Messi-esque things, even if his game is composed of other elements which Messi doesn't possess or bother with, is Harry Kane. Am I crazy here? Now, we love questions like this and we've got a great episode out of it, I think. Particularly what I liked about Mark's question is he said, off instinct, who would you say plays most like Messi? And I thought that's a fantastic question to ask Michael Cox. But he also asked, who does a deep dive at the data suggest? And that's obviously Mark Kerry's round. So without further ado, I set the guys to work uh, to answer this question, not just about Messi, but we've expanded it to Cristiano Ronaldo, of course, but also some of the other best and most recognisable players from the last few generations. I want to find out which current players resemble those former greats. At perfect timing with the Champions League group stage having started this week, we're thinking about the best players in world football playing in its most prestigious club competition and their footballing ancestors. So, uh, Michael, you're going to look at these from a tactical perspective and you've found it quite difficult, I think, 
because of the extent to which the game has changed tactically, technically, physically since 2000, even since 2010. Yeah, I did find it quite difficult, actually. But I think, you know, as you imply, that probably makes it a bit more fun. And yeah, particularly with attacking players, I think the game has changed. I think almost all good attacking players now are not necessarily based around pace, but they can depend on pace, which I'm not sure was the case 20 years ago. I think there's just more versatility now and players are more all-rounders. And there's lots of players, for example, Phil Foden. I find it difficult really to categorise what he is. I just think he's he's basically good at everything. And I'm not sure there were many players like that 20 years ago. I also think having discussed this over the last few days, there's an aspect of this where the players from former generations were so fixated on what they did with the ball, what they were able to do, particularly the attacking players, of course. it's When you're asked about them tactically, it's all about what they did with the ball at their feet, whether it was as creators, as dribblers, entertainers or goal scorers. Whereas now, at the very top level, in particular, Mark, it's about so much more than that. And someone like Sadio Mane, I think of as excelling off the ball almost as much as I do with what he can do with it. Yeah, I was going to say, we don't really talk about Luis Figo for his pressing intensity and his you know staying in shape too much but yeah no I completely agree it's it's all about the more of the all-rounder side of things and this was a good exercise for me to look back at some YouTube clips as well and one of the things that stood out to me was that there is some awful defending across sort of the game historically that's probably the case for the modern day as well but there just seems to be far more space for these exciting attacking players to to go into I may be doing the, the game a disservice there going back a few years. But yeah, we'll, I'm sure we'll work through all of those examples. How did you approach this in terms of your method? Uh, I didn't give you weeks to prepare for this, to build your own model. So, you know, we're talking about players from 20 years ago in some cases. In terms of a data deep dive, how does that look for you? Yeah, I basically did it based on my own kind of appraisal of the the players in question and their the traits that I thought that they you know were most strong at, um, and then I turned to Smarter Scout, which is uh, you know a common resource that we use on site and a lot of the the work that we do. And it's, for those who don't know, it provides a, a rating between zero and ninety nine on a number of different player traits, and they're given a the players are given a um, a rating relative to other players within their position. So I've kind of done it based, you know, who is above average on the the traits in question um, to create a bit of a short list rather than, yeah, a complex model. But some of it sort of works out quite well. Some of it, I think, is, is based on vibes, as we've spoken about before. But yeah, we'll get there. Okay, so we'll start with peak Lionel Messi. This is who Mark Travis asked us about. And Michael, remember that Mark's question was, who plays the most like Lionel Messi? What's your answer? Well, my, uh, my answer is a teammate of his. It's Neymar. Um, I think he's probably one of the very few players who can score and assist and dribble like peak Messi. I think also the order of which that he developed those qualities came in a similar way to Messi. Initially really stood out because he was a fantastic dribbler in tight spaces, particularly out wide. Then he became a bit more efficient in terms of goal scoring. And then he became a provider as well. Um, I mean, obviously they've played together twice at Barcelona and then PSG. So to a certain extent, because of that, I think Neymar has had to play a different role to Messi for obvious reasons. But I think when they play for their respective national teams, 
there's quite a lot of similarities. I mean, often both as a number 10, both kind of given a bit of a free roll without the ball as well. Um, I think they are, in a way, quite similar. Okay, so Selesau Neymar really is is the specific answer there. Uh, Mark, <laughs> trying to compare Messi to anyone using numbers is, is difficult. Uh, where did you end up here? Yeah, I'm glad that you said that first and foremost because the idiosyncrasies and the individuality of Lionel Messi means that you cannot replicate this in the data. But nevertheless, I went to Smarter Scout and I looked at forwards who rated above average in progressive passing. We know that Messi was so good at that. Obviously, ball carrying and dribbling. Uh, Ball retention, he kept the ball and does keep the ball so, so well. Um, And obviously his contribution towards chance creation from shots and from progressing the ball. And I, well, there was the, the person who stood out the most last season, at least, was Christopher Nkunku at RB Leipzig. Now, granted, he is not left footed. He is not necessarily the same in his visible style shall we say in terms of his low central gravity etc but he is one of the few players who rates highly on those above actions maybe not quite as you know have as close control as as Lionel Messi but very few players do Um, but he posted some great numbers last year 20 goals 13 assists and if you look at the video as well I think some of his sort of scooped finishes that he scores when he just dinks it over the goalkeeper kind of reminded me a little bit of Lionel Messi there Um, the way that yeah sits the goalkeeper down to finish Um, the fact that he can play wide you can play through the middle um like Messi can as well I just thought yeah from a data perspective I think I'm going to go with Nkunku although I would like to give a shout out to Kareem Adeyemi as well fantastic ball carrier young player who does actually visibly look a little bit more like Messi in the way that he carries the ball great start and and really interesting I was kind of hoping it would be a little like this um uh, Michael's approach definitely will bear in mind Aesthetics. I think the way that most people would think about this as they listen to the pod, they will there will be an aesthetic aspect of this, of, of how we believe a player plays, how they look like they play, how we see them play. That's why I love the numbers aspect of it as well, which, which can remove those aesthetics. And it reminds me a little bit of our episode with John Muller the other week with player roles. And sometimes it, it doesn't always line up with how we and our brains see things, but uh, there's a lot of value in, in looking at what players are doing uh, and Nkunku coming out well there. Michael, I want to bring up Harry Kane here just to do Mark Travis justice. He mentioned that, that he sees a lot of Messi in the positions that Kane takes up and some of the actions that Kane performs. Uh, and I've got the sort of false nine on one shoulder and I've got the Harry Kane nine and a half on the other shoulder. H- how similar are they? Well, I think there is a similarity in that Kane is very good at coming deep and playing through balls in behind for wide players running through. I mean, I think of Son at uh, Tottenham as doing a kind of similar thing to what maybe Pedro or David Villa did at Barcelona when Messi played that role. For me, it's the dribbling's the issue. I mean, I think Messi, first and foremost, is a great dribbler. He's added so much more to his game, but I don't think of Kane as being real elite dribbler in that respect obviously there's other things he does well he is more of a, a physical player as a number nine um so yeah in in some ways I see it and in some ways I don't so some of the aspects of the the passing patterns some of the aspects of course of the the finishing how excellent they both are on that front but not fully Mark in answer to your question and we're going to expand that on to a number of of former players one of them still going with Manchester United Cristiano Ronaldo haven't seen a lot of him on the pitch for them this season uh, let's talk about peak Cristiano uh, Mark 
quite difficult because as we've we've done a whole episode on Ronaldo's progression over his career, he's been a lot of different types of player over the last 20 years or so. So how did you approach this one? Yeah, I looked at him more on the left side. So the criteria I used for Smarter Scout was a left winger above average in ball carrying, the contribution to chance creation from shots and from ball progression, good aerial ability, which we know Ronaldo to be so strong at um, in both set pieces and in open play. Um, And again, just looking at it last season, um, an interesting one, which people might hammer me for, but I think it could be an interesting one is Cody Gakpo at PSV Eindhoven. Now, in his aesthetic as well, he is similar in terms of his his height. He's six foot two, um, a little bit taller than Ronaldo, but has a real strong aerial presence, really likes to carry the ball. Obviously, he's not going to be as prolific as Ronaldo was at his peak, but very few players in the history of football were. Mate, you say that, he's got six in five this season in the area division. Exactly, yeah, that's what I was going to say. He's maybe got an upper level, like Ronaldo, where you can see just throughout his career, he's going to maybe hit those uh, those mad heights. But, I mean, with Ronaldo, he's, it's worth remembering, he scored 40 goals or more on three occasions in La Liga at Real Madrid, which is just like different level. So we can't compare it in terms of the, the numbers of goal scoring output. Looking last season, Gakpo um, scored 12 goals and 12 assists at, at PSV. Um, and as you say, going very well in the early part of this season. Um, but stylistically, I think it's interesting as well as I say, Gakpo, six foot two, taller than average for a kind of a, a wide forward, but can play anywhere across the front line. Maybe doesn't use his height as well as he could compared with Ronaldo, who obviously has and had a, a fantastic leap in the air. Um, probably more about kind of the pace and power rather than the sort of delicate skill that we refer to or think about with, with Lionel Messi. But I think there are some kind of parallels there. And yeah, I'll be excited to see more of him. He's in the same PSV, in the same group as Arsenal in the Europa League. It'll be exciting to see him um, in, in Europe. Definitely. Uh, Michael, transfer marked reckon that Ronaldo has played 393 times off the left wing, 249 through the middle through a, in a centre-forward role. I was wondering whether in your head, if you distill Ronaldo, do you still see him as that sort of hybrid goal-scoring dribbly left winger or more the more recent Ronaldo, the, the poaching nine? That's a good question. I think probably at his best he was in a blend of the two roles at Real Madrid. I think often the, the system was formatted so he could do both. There was certainly a period where he didn't like being the main number nine. He wanted to be, if you like, the second striker coming in from the left rather than really having the team based around him. And often there were players, whether it was Bale or Di Maria, or in a different way, Mesa Ozil, who would kind of play certain roles that, that allowed him to do that. So, yeah, I'd say somewhere in between the two. And, I mean, those figures sound about right, but I think there's certain there's certain times when he was at Real Madrid where you could debate really what position he was playing, whether it was as a left winger or as a, a, a proper centre-forward. Mark's brought up Gakpo as a as the, the perhaps the closest comparison of course the only current players with a similar goal output are Haaland and Mbappe uh, Mbappe may or may not come up later in the episode but between those two maybe Haaland and Ronaldo are there any comparisons to be made I mean to a certain extent in terms of the physical power I think that is there I, I must say I find it difficult really to find an equivalent for Ronaldo which seems odd because whenever you listen to a young player saying who they were inspired by growing up, they always seem to say Ronaldo. I think maybe they say Ronaldo more than Messi. And yet I can't think of that many players who 
really play like peak Ronaldo, maybe because he was such a good all-rounder. But yeah, Gakpo's a decent comparison. And it's interesting that it's a, a Dutch player because the Netherlands has always developed, I think, proper wingers and wingers that are focused on goal scoring rather than just kind of stretching the play and crossing. Um, so yeah, that's a, I can't really think of anyone better than that, to be honest. Okay, we've got Messi and Ronaldo done. Their Ballon d'Or dominance started in 2008 and is still going, of course, apart from that one Luka Modric year. So we have to go back quite a long way to find the next players to compare to our modern day stars. Um, I've used the Ballon d'Or, looked at the podiums from between 2000 and 2008 and plucked out a few guys to ask you about. Many of these players won Champions League trophies as well. So uh, the sorts of players that uh, the current crop should be looking to follow in the footsteps of. Let's go to Kaká, who who won the last Ballon d'Or before the Ronaldo Messi era, 2007 Champions League and Ballon d'Or winner. A player who, Michael, even in his era, was someone without many obvious imitators. Yeah, I think you're right. He was such an unusual player, Kaká, because he was a great ball carrier in central positions. I think he was always more about power than you'd expect for a Brazilian number 10. And I remember the first time I saw him play live, which I think was at one of those friendlies at the Emirates that Brazil used to play quite a lot back in the day. I couldn't believe how big he was, like how almost wide he was, such broad shoulders. And yeah, for all, I mean, he could play some wonderful passes. You think of that one for Crespo in the 2005 Champions League final. But I think he was more about his speed and his power. And so, like you say, even at the time, that was pretty unusual. And I think there are fewer. I mean, he, he almost always played as number 10 or as a second striker, I very rarely recall him playing out wide. And I think just that in itself is quite rare these days. There aren't many players around these days who have to belong as number 10. I think we saw many more players who can operate um, from a wider area. So he's a difficult one to to find a comparison for, certainly. (laughs) Well, I completely echo what what Michael's saying. It is genuinely really difficult because of the the stylistic profile that, that Kaka had. So I'm going to just defer to the numbers here. Um, And the criteria I used was a central attacking midfielder above average in ball carrying, their contributions to chance creation from shots and ball progression. And even the shortlist was was difficult because there's such few players who really truly fulfill that um, that profile. But I'm going to go for Florian Wirtz at Bayer Leverkusen. Less so in his build, as I say, the aesthetic is completely different, but a real ball-carrying attacking midfielder. He posted great creative numbers last season. He's 19 years old, 18 for a lot of last season, um, but scored seven goals and had 10 assists um, last season. Um, As I say, plays as as a number 10, more in a 4-2-3-1 at Leverkusen, whereas... I think we spoke about it before, haven't we, with the the Christmas tree formation. Kaká largely would maybe be within a four-three-two-one. Would we sort of fair to say? Um, but yeah, I think it is a completely difficult one. You know, he's not necessarily that stylistic match, um, but very few people are like Kaká. And again, looking at the video of Kaká, just how fast he was, as you say, Michael, really strong, really fast. And there's many examples where I think he gives the the opponent, whether it's the midfielder or the defender probably five to ten yards and still just completely ghosts past him he's just such a strong ball carrier Kaka from central areas so Vert maybe not quite in that profile but um, a young player exciting player and it'll be the first time that we see him in the Champions League this season so Vert Gakpo and Kunku all three of them 
competing in European competition uh, this season for us to keep a very close eye on. Uh, just 19, 23 and 24 years of age respectively. It's interesting to me that we haven't had yet someone who's a little older, someone who's had a longer time to to prove themselves as the successor to, to a former great. How about the 2006 Ballon d'Or winner Fabio Cannavaro? Uh, Michael, talk to me about Cannavaro. You know, famously undersized for a centre-back uh, and therefore always a reference point in discussions about centre-backs such as Lissandro Martinez. Yeah, that is true. I mean, he was, I'd, I call him a pure defender, really. I mean, he wasn't awful on the ball, but I think by modern standards, his passing was was okay. Um, I think he was an interesting player in that he could he could play in different roles as a centre-back. I think he could play as a quite an aggressive marker or he could play a bit more of a calmer game. Um so yeah, he was he was a pure defender and obviously the last player, the last defender to win the Ballon d'Or. I know Van Dijk came close a couple of years ago, but I think to a certain extent as well, Van Dijk was praised for his on-ball ability, whereas Cannavaro really won the Ballon d'Or for his defensive performances in that 2006 World Cup. So there's going to be an aspect to this where in anointing a, a Cannavaro-esque modern player, we're going to be damning with some faint praise because we're almost specifically looking for players who aren't known for on-ball ability. Is that fair to say? I suppose that is true. I think a lot of the modern defenders, really, it's their their passing ability that catches the eye. And then sometimes they have to learn the defensive side of the game almost on the job. Um, so, yeah, we'd be looking for, first and foremost, a defender, I think it's fair to say. Who's our pure defender, Mark Carey? <laughs> well, I'll give you the name, but... I feel like I haven't gone down the data route here at all because it is so difficult to to profile centre-backs and defenders. Again, something we've spoken about on this podcast, if I recall. Um, so the name that I think collectively Michael and I agree on is Ruben Diaz of Manchester City, of course. Um, kind of also not the tallest centre-back around. We spoke about Cannavaro's height. I think that Ruben Diaz is about six foot one, which for a centre-back isn't you know the tallest. Um, but I think similar in that they both kind of read the game well, both have good leadership qualities as well and, and quite enjoy the art of defending. So more down the vibes route than the, the data route. But I think, would, would you both of you agree with Diaz? Yeah, I can see that. Certainly when he went in at City, I think that was what, you know, he, he got praised for really just being a bit old school and not being, you know, a John Stones or even a Laporte in terms of how comfortable they were on the ball. Um, so yeah, I, I can see that. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. This episode is supported by Season 3 of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League 2 after 15 seasons in the National League. 
dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. Catch all new episodes Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. I want to move on to, to, to the 2005 Ballon d'Or winner, Ronaldinho. Uh, Michael, take it away here. Well, I suppose Neymar would be an obvious name, although we've already said Neymar. Uh, so I guess Vinicius is, is, an, is another one who's, I think he's got the trickery. He plays from the left. He's, he's become more efficient in terms of his goal scoring and assisting. Would it be really wrong to choose a non-Brazilian here? Like, Mark, I feel like it's the sort of thing that, that the numbers, the cold, hard numbers, might be happier chucking up a non-Brazilian than, than we would be. I mean, to be honest, I'm caught between Neymar and, and Vinicius Jr. as well. And I don't know if it's just confirmation bias, to be perfectly honest. But, I mean, I know that Michael did a, a great episode recently on the Athletic Football podcast, if I recall, about Brazilian players um, and how... <laughs> and how uh, you know, across all the different, you know, Brazilian players, but Ronaldo, Ronaldinho, I should say, um, of just how integral he was in sort of Barcelona's return to the top of European football. Obviously, the 2006 Champions League being key to that. Um, one thing about Ronaldinho, though, which I think you could kind of say about Neymar and Vinicius Junior. I know that it's still early for Vinicius Junior in his career, but his sort of goal output. And I know that people used to criticise Ronaldinho for his goal output. And he did score plenty of goals, but he only scored more than 20 league goals um, on one occasion, which was the 2006-07 season. So for all that his you know, undoubted skill and his quality, you'd maybe say that Ronaldinho could have scored more considering just how good he was for that sort of period of maybe three years. I'd probably put Neymar in the same category, Vinicius Junior, as I say, there's still time. But Neymar hasn't scored more than 13 goals in the league since 2018-19. And I know that he's had his injury issues. But again, for a player of his quality in the French league, I think he should be scoring upwards of 20 goals every season, given the, the chances that PSG generate. Yeah, I think the stats thing is interesting because he didn't score that many goals. But it feels to me like he was maybe the last player in the era before everyone was really interested in stats. I mean, individual stats weren't so easy to come by back then. And I just don't think we really spoke about numbers in quite the same way. So I think it's it's an interesting point about Ronaldinho. I wonder if he came through now, you know, post Messi and Ronaldo and Lewandowski to a certain extent, whether he would be more uh, interested, more determined and in really scoring prolifically. I mean, I wonder whether another comparison, since, since he refused to tolerate Brazilians, Ali, this might be a bit of a weird one, but Jack Grealish. I mean, he's got the he's got the trickery. Plays from the left, kind of a cross between a left wing and a number ten. He can assist. He can score. He's maybe not as prolific as he should be. I know he hasn't had a a particularly sparkling year or so at Manchester City, but we are talking about a player that Pep Guardiola paid a hundred million pounds for. I mean, that's a huge amount of money. Um, and I do think there is a kind of similarity in the way that they 
feel like an individualist, but actually are team players, I would say. I, I mean, I think the goals thing with Ronaldinho comes back to that. I don't think he was that focused on individual glory. And for all the kind of trickery and showboating, yeah, th- there was a sense to me that he was a team player and he was quite efficient and he wasn't a kind of liability or a luxury that I think a lot of people in hindsight consider him. And maybe towards the end of his career when he was less, you know, less efficient and less fit, maybe that was a bit of an issue. But I can see some kind of comparison there. Mm, good head of hair as well. Good head of hair. I'm pleased to have teased that out of you, Michael. I must admit, Grealish seems one of the most likely players in the Premier League, at least, to control a crossfield ball with something other than his instep as well, which feels very Ronaldinho. You know, maybe his uh, his thigh or the, or the outside of his foot or a, a heel somehow. Uh, that feels quite Ronaldinho, albeit I, I'm not sure he does as much of that anymore because he's scared of, of Pep. Um, pre-2005, uh, we've just picked and chosen a couple of others, not all Ballon d'Or winners, but guys I wanted to hear you talk about uh, and all of them on the podium at some stage. Uh, let's talk Thierry Henry, uh, Mark this one feels like maybe the most obvious. Is it too obvious? I'm going to have to go down the obvious route. I mean, Kylian Mbappe, no, you know, no surprises there. The the ability to to dribble, to to finish, blistering pace, the way that he obviously advances the play, operating within that left half space, which sort of was known to be the Henri zone. You know, if you've got that, you know that you're a good player. Um, Mbappe's numbers last season, obviously off the scale, um, 28 goals and 17 assists for him last season, which again, I think you'd put in the, the Henri kind of category of both a goal scorer and a creator, able to kind of do both the way that Henri would link up with his Arsenal teammates was incredible. Obviously then going on to, to Barcelona and doing the same as well. So it's hard to look beyond Mbappe. Um, in terms of the kind of the, the dribbling and the how much they offer in attack as well. Again, I'd put a little shout in for Kareem Adeyemi of doubling up there, but I think that he could be a, a one to look out for in the, the longer period as well. Yeah, it feels like there's a, a few with Omri. Again, he, he was the poster boy for the next generation of strikers that were based really around speed and movement rather than being like a penalty box poacher. I think another one who springs to mind is uh, a topical one is Alexander Izak, who's just joined Newcastle. I know he's said that Omri is his idol uh, and he's taken number 14 at Newcastle, which I suspect is not a coincidence. And just his ability to time his runs and go in behind, he can come short and spin in behind. Um, and just almost his running style, I think, is quite similar to, to Omri. Um, but there, yeah, there's a few. He feels to me, like I say, it felt like he was a template for a lot of strikers. So there's, there's maybe more in this respect than, than some of the others. Okay, let's flick through a few more. Michael, tough one, it feels instinctively, to to find the modern day equivalent of Raul. Yeah, I I really struggle. I mean, there's no real second strikers anymore. He wasn't a number 10. He certainly wasn't a number 9. He would kind of play inside left, just off a proper big striker. Um, João Felix, maybe. I think he's probably a bit too quick and a bit too dribbly to be a, a Raul equivalent. Um, obviously plays for the wrong club in Madrid as well. Do you think he's the sort of player where, you know, he was so admired for his intelligence, his footballing IQ. I'd love to know what he what his game would look like, like numbers-wise, sort of, you know, modern underlying data-wise. I'd be fascinated to see if, if he would stand up to 
to that specific test or whether, you know, it might be seen a bit differently. Yeah, I, th- I think that's a fair point. And, and for a player who, he did have a turn of speed role, but I think of him as playing quite slow in a, in a kind of deliberate way because he was quite imaginative and quite intelligent. And you sometimes do wonder whether there is room for players like that in the modern game. So, yeah, I'm, I'm struggling to really find an equivalent there. I think I think the Jar Felix one is a is a really good shout. I mean, on the note of Raul as well, I think it probably feeds into the the Ronaldinho point of just how it wasn't necessarily about numbers. And I know that he wasn't an out and out number nine, but I think he only scored. Looking at his data, he only scored more than twenty goals on in the league on three occasions across his whole career. And I think his his sort of legendary status, I think, is more about his kind of consistency and longevity across. A number of seasons um, rather than necessarily his sort of I was going to say his clinical finishing he was also a very good finisher as well but a very difficult one to to profile and kind of probably feeds into the fact that there's not as many of his type of his position anymore in the modern game. Michael Pavel Nedved won the 2003 gong what made him so good at that time and who from the modern game sprung to mind here? Well, I think he had a bit of everything. He he was a dribbler. He was very selfless. He could play from wide or really as a number 10 when he was at his best. And he scored some brilliant long-range goals, um, was good with both feet as well. I think uh, tactically he's a different player, but I thought of Kevin De Bruyne. Um, I think just a really good, consistent, powerful, yeah, attacking midfielder. Um, I mean, De Bruyne often has played as a number eight for Manchester City but I don't think he would be in a previous era and I don't think he would be under that many managers I think a lot of managers would be using him as a number 10 Um, and yeah they're both direct they can shoot with both feet Um, they can play wide or through the middle Um, yeah I'm relatively happy with that comparison okay and a tougher one perhaps another Italian centre-back how about Paolo Maldini well, interesting you, you call him a centre-back because I think of Pete Maldini as, as a left-back. Um, but yeah, obviously shifted into the centre later in his career. It's a tough one because, I mean, how many full-backs really are known primarily for their defending these days? Not many. The other mad thing about Maldini was that he was primarily right-footed. He came through the youth system as a, a right-back, just happened to get his chance at left-back. And not only did he make it work, he made it look as if he was naturally left-footed. So I would say he's somewhere between João Cancelo, who's obviously a completely different player because he's a playmaker, but is a right-footed left-back, has, has become comfortable left-back. And the other one is, is Azpilicueta, just because he's a full-back who can play on either side and is just very solid defensively. Maybe not as speedy as some other modern full-backs, which I think uh, ties into Maldini as well, who was relatively quick, but certainly not a uh, an Alfonso Davies. So yeah, if I can have two players, I'd I'd go for those two. I think they're both both really good shouts. I mean, it's probably more of a wider point, but I'm doing a piece that's coming out quite soon about active and passive defenders based on their their metrics, and I think it would be fair to say that Maldini would probably fall into the latter category in terms of the volume of of actions that he makes. I mean, I'm not going to pull up the famous quote that he said about the tackling and things like that. But again, I do agree it was a tricky one to try and think of a, a parallel for in the data, not least because it's tricky to, to profile defenders, as I say. But yeah, with Maldini's kind of composure and reading of the game being so good, I think that's obviously why he was seen as such a legend of the game. I think I've shown 
my age in a sense by calling him a centre back because I think uh, probably right in saying Michael that anyone who watched him certainly at the start of his career in the 80s and dare I say it through the 90s would remember him as a left back but but those of us who who really sort of switched on in the 2000s would have remember would have thought of him as a centre back uh, and of course you know that that famous stat you, you know how many goals Baresi and Maldini conceded in games they they played together the, the answer may surprise you it, it's 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 not 23 it's not 23 no. it's 301 <laughs> in 401 games it's still pretty good eh it's still pretty good but it's not sport bible worthy no <laughs> I... it, it in that it, in in that it's been um, you know verified I think I'm right in saying that stat that went viral was actually how many goals they scored, wasn't it? 31 between them in 400 games. Actually, I have to thank someone called Matt Dawson on Twitter here. Did a, did a whole thread investigating this spurious claim that they conceded. I think it's 23 goals in 190 games that played together. Matt's conclusion was that it's not the goals they scored either. It was the average goals they conceded per season essentially. So they conceded 301 goals and they played, let's say, 12 seasons worth of football together, something like that. So 23 goals a season, which is still an astounding stat, um, but not quite as good as the the false one that does the rounds. Uh, let's finish off with Zizou and Figel. Um, Zinedine Zidane, Mark, difficult one to profile, I, I imagine. Massively difficult uh, to, to profile. He was a unique player, Zinedine Zidane. I think I went to the numbers basically here and I deferred to say, I'm going to look at the central midfielders who play those kind of neat, sharp passes. Um, they keep the ball well. They carry the ball really well uh, or really frequently um, and advance the play really well. And I think someone who came out would, I think, fit the bill um, stylistically that is Thiago Alcantara, um, obviously at Liverpool. In the numbers, it completely matches I think also kind of have that same sort of feeling that both players kind of have that how do they even do that with a football sort of feeling you know their, their t technique and technical ability the way it looks like the ball is on a string um, I think there's that kind of same feeling as well as it being in the in the numbers as well so while Thiago doesn't necessarily play like Zidane in terms of that um, you know the way that Zidane would like to kind of pirouette and you know keep the ball in that sort of way um it's not quite like that but in terms of that majesty on the ball I think that uh, the two are kind of similar yeah I quite like that I I think they're also a similar player in that I don't really know what they are they're not quite number 10s they're not deep lying midfielders they're somewhere in between I think sometimes tactically have been a little bit difficult to to integrate. I don't even think they're number eights, really, in the kind of classic way we talk about them. And I also just have a sense that, I mean, for all their talent, and, and you mentioned that, Mark, I, I think that's what they're defined by, isn't it? They're defined by just their ability to do brilliant things rather than necessarily consistently paying brilliantly. And I really like Thiago, but I must say, I remember watching him at 21, 22, when he was first... Um, playing at Guardiola's Barcelona and thought, well, this guy is going to be like the best player in the world. And I don't think we've ever really spoken about him in that, in that way. Everyone loves to watch him play, but I don't think he's had a consistent impact at the highest level the way he, he maybe could have done. A fantastic chapter in, in your book, Zonal Marking, uh, Michael, about Zinedine Zidane. And some fascinating quotes were dug out uh, and translated for that book as well. Um, uh, it's definitely worth a read. Is... is 
there a suggestion that Zizou wouldn't operate in the same areas of the pitch that he operated in back in the day uh, and, and might, if we placed him in the current game, uh, be obliged to thrive a little bit deeper? I think that's true. I think it's a lot harder these days to find space between the lines in particular. And yet, his, again, I think just his lack of speed maybe would mean he, he wouldn't really play as a number 10 so much. I think he... I mean, I think I'm right in saying when he first went to Juventus, he was tried in, in the deepest role, in the kind of Andrea Pirlo role, which was an anomaly throughout his career. But I wonder if he came through now, he would be a kind of Marco Verratti type player oh. rather than a number 10. Oh. I'd quite like to see that, you know. Uh, let's finish off with Luis Figo. Um, Mark, how did you approach this one? What sort of player was Figo? Yeah, well, this one was especially difficult, I thought, because looking at the data, I was thinking of a, a right winger who could carry the ball, um, who has a really eye for a, a shot. And first and foremost, looking at someone who is a, a right winger, but obviously as Figo was right-footed, everyone who came up in the shortlist was left-footed given that again the the evolution of the game that anyone who plays on the right wing is often an inverted forward so it was difficult to really get too many reliable too much reliable output here but um, I know that Michael had a a good offer uh, of someone who could who could be similar. It's quite a random one I had to look up where he was playing now and he's at LA Galaxy Uh, and that would be probably more the Bayern era of Douglas Costa who was kind of just used by Guardiola as a real stretching the play crossy winger obviously he could shoot as well and Figo certainly could shoot but I think of him crossing more than I do think of him kind of cutting inside which was obviously very different to Ribery and and Robin the the two who came before him but yeah Figo again yeah just a difficult player to find a a comparison for a bit of an all-rounder in a way I mean I think um, he could play on either flank he was probably a forward more than a a midfielder but um, but yeah someone who really belongs on the flank and and not a number 10. I think a lot of the, the good modern wide players are kind of could play as number 10s as well, whereas I can't really ever remember seeing that from Figo. I'm going to be a real disruptor here and just throw Trent Alexander-Arnold into the mix. What <laughs> chance, Michael, Luis Figo would be a right back at the top level in 2022? I don't know if he'd be a right back, but I, I kind of see Alexander-Arnold and Beckham in terms of just being pure crosses from that right-sided position. Um, I'm not sure Beckham would be a wide midfielder. Maybe he'd be a central midfielder and a bit of a number eight. But yeah, in terms of just being a pure crosser, I think we see them at uh, a fullback now. Well, uh, given the way the game has gone, albeit this is entirely hypothetical, there must be players from... 20 years ago who who would now be fullbacks because of the skill set that's required to play that role that simply wasn't required at that time. Um, 11 former greats uh, of the European game profiled on this episode. Thank you guys so much for doing the work here. Uh, It's clear that you found it quite difficult but quite fun. Uh, I certainly have enjoyed uh, hearing your suggestions. Some of them have surprised me. Some of them I've just nodded my head straight away. Um, We had a couple that that we just found too difficult. So I'm going to open this up to the floor, uh, to the listeners. Um, Ronaldo, Phenomeno, R9. Uh, we struggled really with that, uh, as we did with Steven Gerrard and Frank Lampard, who at one point, uh, I forget the year, were on the Ballon d'Or podium together in second and third. Uh, which current players uh, play tactically 
most like Stephen Gerrard and Frank Lampard. Uh, send us a tweet or comment uh, on the podcast, which you can do on the Athletic app. We'd love to hear your suggestions for some of the players that we've spoken about. I'll just give a, a quick recap, uh, if you like, so that you can remember the names uh, and keep an eye on them in this year's Champions League, Europa League, in the case of some. Uh, for Lionel Messi, we put forward Christopher Nkunku and Brazil's Neymar. Uh, for Cristiano Ronaldo, it was Cody Gakpo of PSV. Uh, for Kaká, the closest comparison we could come up with was Florian Wirtz of Leverkusen. For Fabio Cannavaro, it was Ruben Diaz. For Ronaldinho, surely Neymar, perhaps Vinicius, maybe Jack Grealish. Uh, for Thierry Henry, it had to be Mbappe with a shout for Karim Adeyemi, uh, who was the, the runner-up for two of these. Uh, Raul was difficult. João Felix, the best that we could do. For Pavel Nedved, it was Kevin De Bruyne. Uh, for Paolo Maldini, uh, we had a few nods here. João Cancelo, I think, was Michael's strongest. Uh, for Zinedine Zidane, it was Thiago Alcantara. And for Luis Figo, it was Douglas Costa. Surely the surprise name uh, of the lot. But great fun. A huge thank you to Mark and to Michael. Theathletic.com forward slash tactics. The place to sign up for an annual uh, subscription to The Athletic, where, of course, you will get the best coverage of Chelsea, of Thomas Tuchel's sacking, of how they move forward from here. And on this feed, if you're subscribed, which you should be, you'll find a bonus episode this week as well. Look out for that. And go well. We'll talk again next week. The Athletic.